At the beginning of this year, we began a short little series as we took a little pause from the Gospel of Luke here on Sunday morning to once again reiterate the principles in which this church has been built upon. And we wanted to bring these principles once again into your mind and into your heart to understand that though they were laid 2,000 years ago, uh, they are still as relevant and as important today as they ever have been. And as we've been making our way through Acts chapter 2, where we find where the general principles that this church has been based upon located, we find that today the church is continuously trying to reinvent itself to allow it to maintain relevance within our current culture. And I argue that I don't believe we need to reinvent ourselves. We need to rediscover how God has designed the church to begin with to function within the culture that it finds itself within. I believe that God has given us the principles by which the church should operate in the New Testament. And those principles are under the study of the theological study of uh, ecclesiology, show us clearly how God designed the church to work. And the role that the church should play within the society that it finds itself. And by understanding the role of the church and the the manner in which the church is meant to operate, individuals coming to church each and every Sunday understand why they are coming. Why it's important and why God commands it. It helps us to understand why we need to be part of a church community and why we gather and worship together each Sunday, and in our case, on Wednesdays, when we come and have our midweek Bible study. I think that churches are, I think they have the right idea in mind, They, they want to remain relevant in our society, but I don't think they're going to discover that by reinventing themselves, or trying to reinvent themselves. And often their idea of reinventing themselves incorporates compromise, where we're going to remove the challenging aspects of Christianity or those aspects of Christianity that is, are not socially acceptable any longer, and we're going to remove those uh, objections, and therefore we're going to allow people to uh, not get hindered by them. But often those are some of the most critical aspects of the Christian faith. And it used to be just certain doctrines often related to morality, but today we find that compromise is even happening when it comes to uh, key doctrines such as the deity of Jesus Christ. I believe the church began in Acts chapter 2. As Peter and the other apostles with the disciples, 120 of them were gathered in an upper room. Per Jesus' command and instruction to wait there for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in our first time session together, we talked about the necessity of being a Spirit-led church and what that looks like. And then secondly, after being anointed with the Spirit in the unique way that they were at that time, as the Spirit came upon them and they began to speak in other tongues of other areas of the world, that time in Jerusalem at Pentecost where you had the individuals from the diaspora, those are Jewish people that went throughout the known world into the Gentile regions included. Uh, When they came back to Jerusalem to worship at the high feast, and Pentecost was one of the three of the fall high feasts, uh, 
they heard the apostles speaking in their own languages. Realizing that the apostles were mere fishermen, they realized that they shouldn't be able to speak in their language. It, it was like, wow, these guys, you know, uh, they're praising God in languages we can understand. How is this possible? And they came to the wonderful conclusion that these guys simply must be drunk with new wine. I don't know about you, but I have never ever encountered someone who is intoxicated all of a sudden be able to speak a second language. Well, at least not a legitimate language, you know. Uh, it's never quite happened that way, you know. Uh, it sounds like you guys have way too much experience in this. Anyway, yeah, well, what a conclusion to come to. And then Peter, of course, answers the question that they raise, and they say, well, what does this mean? And he begins to give them a biblical answer in the evangelism. And, and we see that the church should be evolved, involved in evangelism. And he gives a biblical answer from the book of Joel, which we looked at last week, and then he brings Jesus into it and reminds them that they have crucified him and that they had uh, rejected the Messiah in whom they had been anticipating. And then the Bible says that they were cut to the heart, they were convicted, and they cried out for salvation. We talked about all that last week. But then the Bible tells us, Acts 2 tells us, that they... 3,000 people came to saving faith in Jesus Christ in that one message that Peter gave. So they went from 120 gathered in this small upper room to 3,120. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a great church growth method, isn't it? So the question then becomes, what did they do with these newly found believers? How did they proceed going forward? What did they make a priority? You know, uh, they now see these 3,100 people and say, okay, now God, what do we do with them? And in Acts 2.42, we find some of the key components that should be found in the church today. Now, Acts 2, as I've stated from the beginning, is not an exhaustive study on ecclesiology. There's much more to be said in the New Testament letters, especially those written by Paul. But fundamental principles are found within Acts chapter 2 that I think are as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago. And one of the first questions the church needs to ask themselves in general is, why do we exist what is the purpose for our existence? And many churches, when answering that question, answer differently. Some churches believe that their primary role here on this earth is to evangelize, which we know is an important part of our Christian life. And we believe here at Calvary that every Christian should be equipped in a certain degree and a certain manner to be able to share the gospel in its basic form with anybody who asks. Even if it's simply sharing your testimony with someone, that you may be that ambassador, you may be that witness for Jesus to anyone you may encounter, because certainly you're going to encounter people that I will never encounter. And I may encounter people you don't want to encounter, you know. And so evangelism is very important. But do we create a whole church 
philosophy and methodology based on evangelism and therefore create an environment where we simply look to evangelize those who are coming in through the door. Now, I agree with those great pastors who say that any verse of the Bible can be used evangelistically. And I believe that, you know, individuals should be given an opportunity to receive Christ as their Savior. And that can happen on any given Sunday. But is that the primary reason for existence for the church? Or other churches believe today what's necessary more than ever, and we'll talk about this to, uh, next week and the week after. We're going to talk about, no, the, we really need to give a place for people to come and socially connect with one another. Develop relationships and do life together. And they feel very, very strongly about that. And so they make it a, a primary object, objective of their church, and they, and they structure things around that uh, idea, and they create environments for that uh, purpose alone. Well, that's great, and church should definitely be a place where you can connect with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and talk, and fellowship, and and spend time together, that's definitely an important component, and we're going to talk about that more. But is that the primary component of the church? What is the purpose of the church? Why do you come each and every Sunday? I believe that the purpose of the church is for the equipping of the saints to fulfill the work of the ministry. And how do you equip people to fulfill the work of the ministry? By teaching them the Word of God. The very first that we find here in Acts 2.42, if you look there with me, as we have stated in verse 41... Luke writes to us, and he says, So those who received the word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, if we went from our gathering today to 3,000 next Sunday, we would have a problem, wouldn't we? You know, it's a good problem to have. And, but what do we do with them? So the very first thing that we discover that the new found church began to do was devote themselves to these things. Now, we cannot just simply pass that word devote because that is key to our discussion. In verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the, fellow, and to, and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And as a result, the church began in a very simplistic manner. But as they were doing this, notice what happens in verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were gathered together 
and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So apparently, devoting themselves to these four things manifested itself in a very healthy manner within the lives of these new young believers. They devoted themselves. They made these things a high priority. They purposed that these things were going to be done and that they were going to do them. And it also entails in the Greek here, this word that is used for devoted, that they're not going to let other things stand in the way. They're not going to be distracted or persuaded or or pulled aside from these things. These things were key, crucial. They were very important. And as as it's been said, those things that are important to a person, they will find time to do them. They devoted themselves to these things. And within it, that shows real purpose. That they made concessions to allow these things to happen. And to begin with, they continued in the apostles' doctrine. Teaching. And as a result, they appear to have grown in their faith to manifest itself in the way that it did amongst them in the remaining uh, verses of chapter 2. It showed that the teaching, along with fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, brought about an environment which allowed the individual believer in Christ to grow, organically, naturally, in their newfound faith in Christ. And as a result, the gospel went forward. I believe that Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, states very clear that he gives apostles and so forth and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. And I find no better way of equipping you than to teach you the Word of God. Throughout the Bible in the New Testament, we are replete with verses that show us the necessity of teaching being a a very important component of the church. Now, when it talks about the apostles' doctrines, obviously they are talking about those 12 that were with Jesus. And they heard firsthand what he said and what they taught him. And then they reiterated it to the people along with the revelation that God was giving them through the Holy Spirit as apostles, they had that authority to do that. And they showed the complexities of the Old Testament and the progression of it and how all these things were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and how He was the Messiah in whom they anticipated and so forth. And then even went on into the church and Christian living and then the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This was key crucial. When Peter denied the Lord three times and then Jesus had that meeting with him, 
and asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? When Peter responded in the positive, he says, of course I love you, Lord. He he goes, then feed my sheep, tend my lambs. And I see that the teaching of the Word of God to the congregation in front of me is me feeding God's sheep. That you may grow into maturity. That you may become the men and women of God that God has called you to be. And if I may just show you a few verses in the New Testament that really expound and also exhort us to place uh, teaching at the forefront of our ministry. Colossians 1.28 Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And of course, 1 Timothy 4.16 as Timothy, uh, I'm sorry, as Paul warns Timothy, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. To Titus, he went on and said very clearly and distinctly, he says, but as for you, Titus, in Titus 2.1, teach what is accords with sound doctrine. And so the early church, they saw teaching as a fundamental part of the early church. How we can find the apostles' doctrines today is in the Bible. That's where we find the apostles' doctrine today, in the Bible. As Paul wrote to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for the training in righteousness, that the man of God may... My voice just cracked. You think at 51 I'd be past puberty by now, you know? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now we need to understand that being equipped is a key understanding of the purpose of the teaching that was going forward. Now, when it comes to the teaching of the Bible, I heard a pastor once say that there are many churches that teach from the Bible, but there are very few churches that teach the Bible. And I had to chew on that for a moment because initially I thought it was just semantics. But then I began to understand what he meant by that as I chewed on it and as I grew in ministry over the decades. That there is a fundamental difference. The majority of teaching taking place in America today is topical teaching from the pulpit. Where topics are engaged And churches go through series like we're doing this little series today. And often within these topics, they are looking at a comprehensive topic and they are trying to give the best explanation of that topic uh, found in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Any individual topic that is approached must be formed and explained by the entirety of the scriptures. This is one of the reasons that a biblical theology is needed. How does a 
thought progress from Genesis and make its way through all the way to Revelation. However, though, topical teachings, I admit, are, can be very, very useful for the church, especially if you want to address a specific issue. There's nothing wrong with a topical teaching. But a steady diet of only topical teachings can run into problems. There are, prohens- uh, uh, there are potential problems inherent in a soul diet of topical teaching. One of those inherent dangers is that you are subjected then to the pastor's favorite topics, right? You know, I mean, if you go to a buffet, and one of the interesting things is to watch the dessert counter when you go to a buffet. It's amazing that vanilla ice cream can be topped with so many different things. And everybody's a little different in their topping of vanilla ice cream. I personally think vanilla is perfect in and of itself. Ushers, deacons. But there are others... There are others who feel that it's necessary to dress it up. But you notice that people are very different in how they do that. Some people put a little bit of peanut butter on there. Some people put sprinkles on and after the peanut butter. Some people put marshmallow between the peanut butter. Others put Oreos and all different kinds of toppings. Because that's the way they like it. And often when churches persist in a steady manner of topics, it's often the topics that the pastor enjoys teaching upon. And of course, you can then avoid those topics that maybe aren't as popular or aren't as conducive or may rub people the wrong way. So topical teaching can be uh, a very limited type of teaching. And of course then, you know, if you're only standing at the dessert counter, you're not eating the the veggies and the meat and everything else, and you're going to have very fat and happy sheep, but not very healthy sheep, right? The second inherent problems with topical teachings is that they often take things in uh, in the minds of their hearers as assumptions. Now let me explain that. Recently, at the beginning of the year, I had some time off and I was going through and listening to various messages of various churches in our area. I like listening in and finding if there's any good things I can steal because I don't believe in reinventing the wheel. And one pastor was teaching on how to overcome anxiety. And of course, that's a very important issue. Anxiety is something all of us struggle with. And during his message, and I, I don't want to, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not belittling him or degrading him, but during his message, he kept saying uh, this phrase, when you're anxious, give it over to God. And when, when you're anxious, give it over to God. And I was listening to him say that over and over again, and seeing the archives of his church and seeing that it was solely topical teaching, I began to understand that the recipients of that, though he is saying something that is correct, they may not be interpreting and hearing it the same way he intends to be saying it or what he means by it. For example, how do they give it over to God? How do I do that? 
How do I give it over to God? But then the other problem within that phrase is the, is the word God. And if I were to say it to you this way, and I use this on Friday night, so the guys who were there on Friday night, don't shout this answer out. But if I were to say to you, if you find yourself anxious, just give it over to Ernie. Ernie? Yeah, just give it over to Ernie. And you're like, who the heck is Ernie? Is that the guy with Bert? You know? Old Sesame Street references for those who grew up in the 70s. But because they don't know who Ernie is, they have no comprehension in how he's going to deal with their anxiety. If you don't know who God is, then why should it reassure you to give your anxiety over to him? If you don't understand what he is going to do with it and how he's going to handle it, etc., how does it comfort the individual? If I don't have a proper understanding of God, then I don't have a proper understanding of my relationship with God. Now, I know this pastor didn't mean any of this when he was saying it, but think of what I am saying for a moment. So many different people, 10 people out of 10 are often going to have 10 different ideas of who God is, right? And some of those people may have a very diminished understanding of who God is and a very overinflated understanding of who God is. For example, some may believe that the reason that they are anxious is because they're in sin, Is that true? Are we anxious simply because we are in sin? Or they may be thinking, I'm anxious because, you know, I'm anxious and I shouldn't be. God never wants me to be anxious because the God I believe in is going to remove all anxiety from before me. Is that true? Is that what the Bible says? Is that what God commits to? See, this is where the problems come in without that understanding of who God is. Well, Paul addresses anxiety. He says, be anxious for nothing. And it's a command. It's it's an imperative in the Greek. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplication, make your request be known to God. That's how I give it to him, through prayer. Going on in that same chapter, getting my eyes off of myself and putting them back on God and meditating on these things. And then notice that in that chapter, Paul never says that God is going to remove the object or the, the reason for the anxiety, but he's rather going to give you the peace that surpasses all understanding to deal with the anxiety. Now that's a lot different, isn't it? So before we can just interject God into something within our thinking or in our life, we must have the right God. So Eric, then what are you prescribing as a methodology of teaching if if topicals are uh, possibly inherent with these problems? Expositional teaching. Expositional teaching. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, Genesis through Revelation. I believe this is what Paul was referring to in Acts chapter 20 when he told the Ephesian elders that he was giving them the whole counsel of God. He wanted them to have the right understanding of who God is, what God desired, etc. And it's interesting, when you read the epistles, and two of the epistles that fascinate me greatly are the epistles to the, written to the Thessalonians, Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. These were two of the first epistles, I believe, that Paul wrote. And as a result... 
it's interesting to hear what he puts in those epistles to these new believers that he probably only spent about six weeks with. And he talks everything from sanctification, justification, atonement, even into eschatology, the return of Jesus Christ, which is a subject today that you hear very little of anymore in our churches. Even though world events that are happening around us are happening so rapidly that I can say with confidence that we are 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ than we've ever been before. I believe expositional teaching, which simply means a thorough explanation of a theory, an idea, or a theology, allows for a larger comprehension and also allows for a contextualization that is lost when verses are randomly picked out and taken out of the context of the letter in which they were written. And many people don't understand that there are multiple contexts to be found within the Bible. Number one, there is the context that it's originally found in the paragraph, the chapter in which it is located. The second context is the, is the book or the letter that it is written in. The third context that always has to be taken also into consideration for proper biblical uh, interpretation is the context of the 66 books of the Bible. How does this verse fit the 66 books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? An expository teaching or simply reading from the beginning to the end will allow you to create a consistency with your contextualization. This way you know that if a verse is taken out of context, you can deal with it and say, no, I don't believe that that's accurate because in the context in which it was written, it was spoken to maybe a certain group of people. There was a certain application for that verse that was specifically given by Paul that is being negated. And as a result, you can draw any type of conclusion. Again, I think good topical teaching is necessary for the church. But I think that expository teaching, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is more thorough and complete. Why did Paul say that to the Ephesian elders? Because he worried that when he left, individuals were going to come in who were wolves in sheep's clothing and devouring the, the newly found saints. We're going through Jude in an in-depth manner on Wednesday and we're discovering that Jude originally wanted to write concerning the common salvation that they had in Christ but then needed to change and ask the people, his recipients, to contend for the faith because false doctrine and false teaching was becoming incredibly prevalent. I think that many today need to rediscover the incredible blessing it is of reading God's Word. Now, doing this is twofold. Number one, your church should be encouraging biblical reading. It should be demonstrating expository teaching by going verse by verse. And even a topical can be uh, a passage taken out of a text and then ex and work through that way too. And that can, that's, that's a good way of doing it too. However, though, what I'm saying is that when you start a book and you go through the book, the congregation always knows where you're at. They can read ahead to anticipate any questions that they may have. 
the uh, comprehension of the Word of God increases. And if the expositor is skilled in the Word, then he can take them to other places in the Bible that support that same idea. And by cross-referencing the Scriptures that way, they get a healthy balance of things. And this is what we have committed to here for 23 years. And so far, we have taught the New Testament thoroughly from uh, Matthew to Revelation and some books twice and some books three times in those 23 years. And there's only a handful of books in the Old Testament that we haven't looked at. Uh, Job being one of them. Reason being is that God usually has me live what I'm reading and teaching. So I've been afraid to dive into Job for, you know, you can understand for personal reasons, you know. But it's a, it's a dynamic book. And one of the things it helps you do is see things in the reality in which God has them. Philosophy is the study of reality, knowledge, and what's the third one? I wrote it down here. Reality, knowledge, and existence. Paul warned us in in Colossians chapter 2 that the world would put forth philosophies that would if adopted, will rob you, that they are fundamentally founded in the elementary spirits of this world, they'll rob you and cheat you of what God has for you. By reading the Word of God, we get a proper worldview upon our world and understand our world in the context in which God wants us to understand it. How valuable is that? And with the Spirit of God in us, As we read through the Word of God, we have the author there with us showing us things and teaching us things as we go. Finding those blessed promises that God has made to you to stand upon in the difficulties and the circumstances of life. But then you learn that God is not only able to promise those things, but He's able to perform them. And you understand His sovereignty and His majesty and His glory. And you understand the responsibility of free will and the picture of it all. And that's what expository teaching brings to the congregation for the equipping. For Paul wrote, he said, in Ephesians 4, 11 through 14, that he gave some apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, the word shepherd there is pastors, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I want to stop there for a moment, if I may. The word equip there means to mend and to tend. It is used in two other places in the scriptures. One, we find it in um, Matthew chapter 4, 21. As we read, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and the boats of, with Zebedee, their father, Mending their nets. It's the same Greek word used here. And in Galatians 6.1, when it talks about restoration, that the brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So this equipping encompasses the mending of an individual. 
restoring their wholeness. The sanctification process in bringing us into the image of Jesus Christ is a process in which God is returning us to the original state in which He created us. Now, that isn't completed here on this earth, so if anyone gives you a card after church and says, hey, would you like to come to my completely sanctified party? We can say, well, no, uh, because nobody is completely sanctified until we are standing before the Lord in all eternity. However, though, we are a work in progress. And God is working and has begun that work in us the moment we came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But it's also restoring us, the Word of God. So as we read the Word of God, it's mending us, it's restoring us, it's helping us to be whole once again, it's dealing with some of the difficulties that we have within ourselves. And as a result, it is equipping us for the work of the ministry, the work of service. It is equipping us, it is preparing us to do and to serve Christ in any capacity in which He has called us to do. See, I believe that the teaching of the Word of God can equip you to do whatever God has called you to do. And knowing that and believing that, that each and every Sunday, each and every Wednesday, we are contributing to your development that you may fulfill the ministry that God has called you to. But a problem has arisen. Oh, here we go. You can put someone in a football uniform, but you can't necessarily get them to play, right? So the question that I've raised is, what happens when people come to church no longer looking to be equipped to fulfill the service in which they are called to, but are simply looking to consume? How, is, how are they then prepared to hear the teaching which is going forward? If they are simply looking to consume, then they are coming each and every uh, Sunday to see how they are personally benefited in some way, how a felt need within their life is being met, when in actuality they should have the heart to come before the Lord and saying, Lord, help me, equip me, that I may serve you. You know, the selfishness that we see in our nation today is overwhelming. The consumer mentality that unfortunately has been birthed in the hearts and the minds of many who attend church today is stifling them. Because I believe that we as Christians must come full circle. That God hasn't called us simply to ride the bench, to simply wear the uniform. He wants us to get dirty. He wants us to play. He wants us to get into the game. But if an individual, I'm going to be honest with you, comes to our church, they are going to be discouraged. They're going to say, I didn't really get anything out of that. And that's one of my favorite sayings. How is that relevant? I love that saying too. See, often people want that experience where they come in and whatever they're going through is immediately addressed from the pulpit and the answers are given to them. And in a pragmatic way, truth is established and they feel like they've had an experience with God. But I have often been said, well, I don't know how that is relevant for us today. 
You see, by reading God's word, God often prepared the disciples before they found them in those, themselves in those circumstances. You may not be going through what we're talking about today, but I guarantee you God's preparing you for to go through it at one time or another. If we talk about trials on a Sunday morning and you say, well, I'm not going through a trial. It's not relevant to me. Well, listen, brother or sister, you will eventually, right? I remember sitting in sermons from my pastor when they were talking about marriage and I was a single guy. I'm like, what does this have to do with me? This, you know, it's like the kids sitting in high school. When am I ever going to use this? When am I ever going to need this? You know, and the next thing you know, I'm married. And pastor, how do you do marriage? You know, it's just like, why, weren't you listening to the teaching? No, I wasn't married. I didn't think I'd ever have to use it, you know. See, God often wants to prepare you beforehand for these things. And this is what equipping is. But there's a second element of equipping. If you go back to Ephesians 4, 11 through 14 with me, let's continue reading on. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, that means the edification of it, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning or by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Interesting. A panel of recent academic professors from some of the top seminaries in the country wrestled with the question, what is a mature Christian in Jesus Christ? And many people, when asked, have varying ideas of what that looks like. Some believe it's one who simply has accumulated a lot of biblical knowledge. I would disagree with that. I know a lot of very smart people who can't walk across the street without getting hit by a car. Others believe that it's simply maturing and perfecting the basics of the Christian faith in their life as they grow year by year, in their faith in Christianity. I think that's incomplete too. I think a mature Christian is one who sees themselves properly in the light of Scripture, who sees themselves as a work of God and sees themselves that they are a progressive work, that God is still working in them. And they are therefore trying to be faithful and obedient to what the Scriptures have prescribed. And avoiding those things that the scriptures say to avoid. But doing it in a humble manner. And if we coincide maturity, notice that Paul said that the greatest manifestation within a Christian's life is love. Not the love that this world has that is all-encompassing and all-tolerant and doesn't call out sin, but the love that Christ puts forward and demonstrates. The perfect picture of a mature Christian is Jesus Christ. And you say, well, that's pretty idealistic. He's always the standard. He's always the one to be measured by. I think it's important that you and I realize 
that maturity is based upon being equipped by the Word of God. That a maturity is based on being equipped by the Word of God. In this, Paul says the church will be built up, number one. Number two, it'll discover unity, where today we're trying to become unified based on compromise. Okay, you don't agree with that, I don't agree with this, let's just therefore compromise those ideas and then we'll form unity. No, unity was based on maturity. Maturity, the thinking and acting in a mature Christian manner. And of course, progressing into Christ-likeness. And as a result, we will not be children tossed to and fro. You know, I heard a pastor once say that he believes that Dante's seventh level of hell is being a pastor of a church full with carnal people. You're always smoothing out the feathers, you know. Somebody's always offended by something. Nobody's, nobody, everybody's never happy all at the same time and so forth. But mature Christians can find unity, edification, you know, wrapped in grace, allowing our faults and, and our mistakes to be worked on by God and growing up in every way. As Paul went on in Ephesians 4, 14 through 16, he said, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitfulness, and deceitful schemes, excuse me. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which is, which is, it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The writer of Hebrews warned us and warned his recipients that their immaturity was causing them great concern. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14 the writer of Hebrews writes, For by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the power of discernment trained by the constant practice of distinguishing, distinguish good from e evil. When Paul was just about to die, he wrote these words to Timothy in one last letter. As Paul was in prison, waiting his execution, writing to Timothy, a young man who he placed in position of the pastorate there in Ephesus, and having one last opportunity to write Timothy, these are the words in which he chose to write. And they're found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, 
who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. He says to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I believe that that time is now where sound biblical teaching is no longer a key component in the the church of Christ in America. We are by no means the only good church. I almost said perfect. You could have stoned me after that. But I do believe that it's my job to equip you. And the best way I can do that is by teaching you the Bible. And I once again commit myself to you to do just that. And we'll go through books, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we'll deal with every subject that we find within them. Some will be very pleasant, and other ones will be very challenging and convicting. But I believe all of this is necessary, that we may grow to maturity. That we would no longer be immature children, tossed to and fro, taken by every wind of doctrine that comes about through the, you know, corridors of our culture. But my purpose is that to equip you to serve the Lord in whatever capacity that He has called you to. And I believe He's called everyone here to something. And whatever that is, the best thing that I can do as your pastor, the best way that I can express to you that I love you is by continuing to teach the truth from God's Word. Are there areas that we as Christians can agree to disagree upon and still remain in fellowship? Absolutely. But there are also areas that we cannot compromise upon. And as a result, we need to be aware of what those areas are to remain healthy. I don't know any other way to help you any better but to teach you God's Word. And trust me, it's more difficult for me because it takes hours of preparation, prayer, and study. I just don't put the Bible under my pillow on Saturday night and by osmosis have this all down. I'd like you to believe that, but it's not true, no. This is the best thing I can do for you. Because I want you to be healthy. I want you to be mature. I want you to manifest the love that Christ has for you to one another. And the only way I can do that is by equipping you with the Word of God. Continuing in the Apostles' Doctrine. 